right, friends, we are in Luke. So you can turn to Luke chapter 10. We are going to look at a portion of uh, Luke chapter 10 today. Psalm 91 last week. Enjoyed, hopefully. All right. We're going to look at uh, the first... 24 verses of this chapter today, so that'll bring us up to the story that many people are familiar with, the parable of the Good Samaritan, um, but we're not going to look at that this evening, we're just going to look at the first 24 verses. The first section would be verses 1 to 20, uh, involving where Jesus sends out uh, 72 disciples, 70 <coughs> disciples, um, and they return, there's a conversation about it, things like that, so we're going to look at that. Um, I'm going to read the first 12 verses just to give us some context. It said, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter first, say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will, will rest upon him. But if not, it will, return, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day for Sodom than for that town. Well, there are some very specific instructions here to these uh, guys, or I don't know if it's guys and gals, it doesn't say, but these folks that are sent out, disciples of the Lord. So we'll take some time, we'll look at them. Uh, One of the things that, that oftentimes this story is compared to when Jesus sent out the 12 apostles. Uh, It's obviously a different time, because there he's sending out 12, here he's sending 70 some uh, to go out. Also, it's a different location that they're being sent out. But there's a very similar direction and um, command, if you will. Go out and do these particular things here. The fact, though, that this is rather, it's sort of a generic group of people who we don't actually know who they are. Names aren't given to us. This isn't sort of a commissioning as it was to the apostles, where they are going to now have this lifetime mission. It was sort of just a period of time that they were going to go out. So in many ways, that applies to all of us as we're living our lives, trying to be the disciples of the Lord. So I want to go back. I want to look at that discover the things that they had to deal with, and then maybe make some comparisons to our lives as well. So looking again at verse 1, it says, Now after this the Lord appointed 72 others, and he sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Now, some manuscripts say 70. So I don't know how many of you in your Bible it says 70, and you keep thinking, why does he keep saying 72? Uh, different manuscripts and, and our Bibles that we have, English Standard Version, King James Version, NIV, and others, they rely on different manuscripts. There are no original texts of the Bible 
that are available to us, or for, of the books of the Bible that are available to us. But we have manuscripts that is simply a copy of the originals that date back to early centuries, uh, long before any other um, work of literature or anything like that um, would even consider going back to. And one of the things you need to know about those manuscripts, those manuscripts agree something to the effect of 98.5% of the time. So there are differences, however, 1.5% of the time in the differing manuscripts. That's why sometimes in your Bible, if you're reading this version, might be slightly different from your partner reading that one. Like, for instance, here we have 70 compared to 72. Now, some might look at that and say, Aha! I knew the Bible wasn't true. The reality is the times where they differ are on things like this. So it's not like, you know, in this Bible Jesus died on a cross and rose again, but in this Bible he didn't. You know, it's not that kind of a difference. It's 70 to 72 and things like that. So just so you're aware of it, um, whether it was 70 or 72 in this instance, I don't think it really matters to us here. But it says that the Lord appointed uh, 72. And again, we don't have much info about these 70, but what we do know is that they were the Lord's disciples. And the word disciple, it's, it comes from the same word as discipline. It's a word which means to learn, or to be a learner. So if you are the discipler, you're the teacher. If you're the disciple, you're the learner, or you're the follower. And these guys were followers of Jesus, and now Jesus is saying, you know what, you've learned, and now I'm going to send you out to go and do. And again, I think we can pull some uh, principles from these guys for our own lives as well, since I think each of us here are seeking to be learners. So notice Jesus, it says, uh, it says, I should say, that they sent them on ahead of him, or he sent them on ahead of him. Now Jesus, in the context of what we're looking at, is in the area that is known as Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is in some of the northernmost uh, or it is the northernmost region of the nation of Israel then and today. Um, if you've heard of the Golan Heights, it's up in that particular region today. Um, so that's the extreme north of Israel. And Jesus is going to be making his way down to Jerusalem, going through the Galilee, down along the Jordan River, uh, and then eventually down into the, into the city of Jerusalem. And so he's sending these disciples as sort of a prep team to go on before him here. Uh, and they're to go ahead of him in every city and prepare the way. Now again, as I said, these disciples, they had spent time with Jesus, they had learned from Jesus, and now they were being sent out to minister for Jesus. And, and honestly, I think one of the first lessons that we see here is that this is what God would have for us as well. <clears throat> that we would spend time with him, that we would learn from him, but then we'd get up and we'd go and we would do. And I don't think that uh, the Lord would have for us to just be if you will, professional Bible students or professional churchgoers or professional small group attenders. But he would have us take some of that, some of the time in our week and go out and do and, and take the things that we're learning. Uh, and so these guys are equipped and now they're going to go and they're going to use their gifts. And that's the first lesson I think the Lord would have for us. Second thing is notice that he sends them out how? He sends them out two by two. I always think of like the animals coming on the ark or something, you know, and so it must be a biblical number, you know, it has to be two by two. Um, I don't think it has anything to do with the animals on the ark, uh, but I do think there's some valuable reasons why we want to go out two by two or in groups or things like that, as opposed to going out by ourselves. Because when you go out two by two, there is security. 
in going out two by two. In some cases, just matters of safety and to be in numbers. But there's also a confidence level when you're with another person that you agree with, and the two of you are going forth, uh, and you feel a little more confident in the process, and thus you might be a little more effective. There is also a sense of relief from the pressure, because there are times where I don't know what to say. And then my partner, he jumps in and he says, that's good, yeah, you know that. And then there's times he's going to get stuck or she's going to get stuck in, and I'm going to be a little more confident to have time to think and come up with an answer. So there's a relief from pressure. And then also we read in the scripture this idea uh, out of the mouth of two or three witnesses going forth. And so two people going together able to confirm the testimony. So these two, they go, or these people, they go out two by two, they go into every town and place where he himself, Jesus, was about to go, it says. Then we read in verse 2, when he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest, it said earnestly, uh, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The first thing I noticed is this, that it says the harvest is plentiful. I think it's significant that Jesus doesn't send them forth as seed planters, but as harvesters. Now, I do know that there, in, Paul talks about in other places, some of us plant, some of us water, but God brings about the increase. But here Jesus is sending them out. So we're looking at two separate things, by the way. Jesus is sending them out, and he says to them that the harvest field is plentiful. That should give every one of us great confidence. Because we know that there's going to be a harvest of people that come into the kingdom of God. And somebody is going to harvest those people. And as his disciples, we can go out in confidence that some are going to come to the Lord. So we're not just going out and kind of planting seeds necessarily, but the Lord would have us harvest. Now, I bring it up because I find in my life, sometimes there's, I'd be a horrible salesman if I had to be that guy, you know, that made a living by selling things. I'd be really bad at it because I hate bringing it to the close. And I don't like to do the close, and I'd rather just go home and call me if you want you know, to buy my product or whatever. And so similarly, it's, I'm very reluctant to bring it to the close. I, my thinking is, well, God will do what he's going to do, and, and that'll be it. But there are, somebody had to do that in my life. Somebody had to say, so what are you going to do with all that information? And I had to respond to it, and more likely similarly in your situation as well. So I think because of this knowledge that there is a harvest out there, you know, I should just go for it and say, hey, what's keeping you from coming to the Lord right now? You know, and I hear people do that, and then they tell testimonies of how lots of people come to the Lord, but yet I'm always afraid to do it. And so I wonder if moving forward a little more confidence, people are out there and they're ready to come to the Lord more than we think. And so we need to cast out that net. How many of you are reading that book that I suggested on Sunday night? Uh, what's that book called? Revival. Some the laws of revival. Y'all, you read it already, Dave? Or you said I'm on three. Chapter, chapter three or page three? <laughs> chapter three. Okay, so chapter it's three. By now, through. then, then you've got there, huh? It's third time through. Third time through. That's right. Very impressive. Um, it's, it's probably around chapter three. So, you, Dave, might you you might recall what I'm talking about? Uh, it talks about sort of the the waves of God's working in people's lives. God works in people's lives in waves, and God works in a church's life in waves, and God works in a nation's life in waves. And, and the point the guy was making, one of the points that the guy was making was, 
He does that because if there's a constant pressure upon a person or pushing upon a person, you tend to get dull to it. But when coming in in waves and going out, and coming in in waves is a sense of what's going on, you know, and you're noticing. It seems true. I, I don't know if it is not in the Bible that it says that, but it does seem true to me. And that being said, God is working in individuals' lives in waves. And there are times where we're more receptive to what God is doing, and there's other times we're not. And so God is preparing a people to come to him, and you might come across that person at just the perfect time. So he says the, the harvest field or the harvest is plentiful, but he says that the laborers are few. Now, part of the reason why the laborers are few is because there is so much work to do. There are, you know, Billy Graham once said, oh, did he say it exactly? He said it to this effect. People said, well, how many people when they come up at your things do you think are actually getting saved? And he said, probably a fourth. You know, he said, because, you know, the, the seed is on good soil, and the other seed's on rocky soil, and the other seed's on, you know, the path, and so on. And so he said, probably a fourth. And I don't, I'm trying to make the connection simply to this, that how many people on the planet are going to come to the Lord? Will it be 25%? Hopefully that's a good number. I wish it was higher. Chances are it's going to be less. We were just talking about Korea, South Korea. They say 90% of South Korea is Christian. It's not 90% in the United States, I can tell you that. And it's probably not 90% in the rest of the world, or much of the world. And so there are lots and lots of people that need to begin a relationship with the Lord. So there's a lot of work to do, and sadly too few workers. As we saw on Sunday morning, you know, the, the day is far spent, the night is at hand, the, the time is short. Another thing that I think is interesting about this is when it's harvest season, anybody harvest? Like you, you were on a farm and harvest and all that? The harvest season is for a limited time. If you, and we would call in all of them when I was on a farm, we'd call in all my, uh, the farmer's friends and everything. Everybody would come out. You feed them, you do whatever you need, but I need hands. And we would go out because if you don't go out and pick that stuff, it'll die on the vine. You know, and you lose all your money from it. And, you know, I wonder if similarly, if God is working in waves and we're too reluctant to share with people or do the, the closing sale or whatever we talk, I used the phrase earlier here, will we miss opportunities? Now, I, I agree with the sovereignty of God and things like that. But there is a responsibility that we play in this part. And I wonder how many opportunities have been missed. I think about people in my life uh, family members and stuff, where there was a period where they were very sensitive, it seemed, to the things of God. And then that time has sort of passed. You know, and they got busy with other things. And, and, you know, you have to look at yourself and say, did I miss my opportunity? Was I too reluctant? Did I think I'd always have lots and lots of time? And so on. So, the laborers are few. So he says, pray the Lord of the harvest. As a disciple, we must be people that are marked by prayer. You know, we want to reach our community for Christ. We want to reach the world for Christ. We want to see people we love come to the Lord and have no prayer life at all about it and never bring these things to the Lord. Honestly, shame on us. And so we should be a people that are marked by prayer because the work before us is too great. And if we think we're going to accomplish this with clever ideas or, or neat church growth ideas and things like that, it's just silly. The Lord has to work in a man's heart. And so we pray. And one of the key things that we pray for is that God might send forth laborers. Who knows if the person you lead to the Lord will go on to be that great soul winner? And what 
Bob, you might know, or any of you might know. Who was it? Who was the shoe salesman? Moody, Moody was the shoe salesman? No. Yeah. He was the shoe salesman, or the shoe salesman led Moody to the Lord? I forget. No, he was the shoe salesman. Moody was. Moody. And, so, and who led him to the Lord? It was some man. His Sunday school teacher or something. Cool. Yeah. And then he went on to be this great preacher. Mm. Wow. Mm. That's pretty neat. I, I heard a story when, I, last week I was near because I went on this prayer retreat. And when I came into the building, uh, it's a beautiful building, and the pastor who, uh, his church kind of built this place, he, he welcomes me. He's like, how you doing, see you? And he's just like, <coughs> telling me all about this place. And somehow, I have no idea how, uh, I'm still in the foyer, and he started telling me a story about Dwight Moody and the Holy Spirit. Uh, oh, because he was talking about this particular prayer room and how the Spirit just fell and, and so on and so forth. And I guess I could explain that more another time. You're probably like, what are you talking about? Anyway, God just really met them. And so he was saying how Dwight Moody used to tell a story. He was over in England. He was uh, getting ready to preach, and he came out on stage, sort of like one of these crusade things. And the crowd went crazy, like he was a rock star, cheering, yelling, hooting, and hollering. That Dwight Moody has come all the way from America and is here. And hollering, cheering, and he was like, you know, hi, everybody, and waving, and uh, received it. And then he began to preach. And about 20 minutes in, dead silence. There was not a word that was being said by anyone, certainly not hooting and hollering like they were doing earlier. And he stopped, and he looked out at the crowd, and he said, you're not hooting and hollering now, are you? And the point that my friend was making, as well as Moody would go on to make, is that when the Spirit of God enters in, there's a sobriety. And there is a, well, there's a sobriety. You've entered into the holiness of things. And so, you know, all the hooting and hollering and stuff like that, no. But anyway, back to Moody, the point that I'm making is just some fellow led him to the Lord, and then he went on to lead many, many, many to the Lord. I remember the, the guy that was used to lead Billy Graham to the Lord was just sort of a traveling preacher that came through, nothing special at all. Uh, and yet there's 18-year-old Billy um, sitting there in service and heard the message and God changed his life. So who knows who you might be. So as you're praying for God to lead and direct and work on man's heart, pray also that the Lord might send forth laborers. And perhaps the person that you're leading will be one of those key laborers. Yeah? Wouldn't that be great? Alright, verse 3 says, Now go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. So here are these guys... Jesus has just called them. He gathered them up. He put them into twos. He told them that the harvest is plentiful. He said, pray the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers. And then who does he send forth? He sends forth them. You know, be careful what you pray for. Because God might move on your heart to be the solution to that thing that you're praying for. And so we we need to be disciples that are willing not just to pray for things, but to go forth as well if that's what God sends us to do. So we're praying, God, do a revival, do a revival. Cause people come to come to the Lord. We want to see an awakening. And then the Lord says, hey, you see that guy over there? Why don't you tell him that I love him, that guy at work, or that guy at this, or the guy, girl over there. And you're like, oh, I don't know. I really want to do that. It's awkward. I'd rather just pray, Lord. He says, no, you need to go your way, as it says there. Now, he also says that they're going to be lambs in the midst of wolves. 
if you are a sent forth disciple and you get serious about advancing the kingdom of God and you believe that there is a harvest field and you want to be one of those laborers, don't be surprised if attack comes against you. You need to expect that the wolves, and particularly that the idea of Satan, is looking to find you at some point when you are unsuspecting and pounce on you. I don't know if wolves pounce, do they? I think cats pounce. And wolves are dogs, aren't they? But anyhow, you get the, the idea. Um, so the picture that I'm thinking of is, here are these lambs, that's the Christians, but here are these lambs that are paying attention to those surroundings and so on. And that wolf is up there behind the bushes or something, just looking for the opportunity for one of those lambs to kind of slip away from the pack, or one of those lambs to kind of not be paying attention too much and pounce on that particular lamb. So we need to be aware. We need to know that the enemy is going to attack. And what do you do with that? Should that freak you out? No, you're just aware of it. You know that it is there, and you stay close to the shepherd. And the shepherd has a stick, and he'll take care of you, and he'll protect you. But if you lose focus on that, then you'll get yourself in trouble. A couple of character traits of the lamb. Lambs walk in humility. They don't think they're big and strong. They're not proud. They just need, show me where the water is. Help me out here along the way. Would you protect me? And lambs also walk in dependence. And in dependence. Uh, not, not absent of dependence. They walk in dependence. That is, they want help. And so that's what we need to be. We're lambs in the midst of wolves. Now, so that's the idea of the wolves being Satan. Well, the wolves can also be the world. I think it's important to point out that the world is not going to be overly joyous that you're coming forth with a message of exclusivity. You know, increasingly in our society, we are becoming an antiquated minority. You, know, you really think that way still? Do you have any idea what century you're living in any longer? And so the world isn't going to be too excited about the message that we have to bring. But we know that there will be those that will receive. The majority is going to reject and they're going to treat us spitefully and so on. But we know there will be some that will receive and so we go forth anyway. Verse 4. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. <coughs> the first three I think you can link together. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. And even a little bit, the last one, greet no one on the road. The idea is that there is an immediacy, immediacy to the call. So if we wait and we wait and we wait until, like, so let's talk about if we wanted to be missionaries. We felt God was calling us to be missionaries. But I don't have enough money right now to be a missionary. But I don't have enough education right now. I don't have enough experience right now. I'm not far, along, far enough along in my walk with the Lord. And we wait and we wait and we wait. And we constantly are finding excuses from going out into the harvest field. Before you know it, the time will be gone. And you won't have an opportunity to go out into the harvest field. So if we wait and wait and wait until we have everything we need to be perfectly situated to go forth, <coughs> then we're never going to go forth. There's a story of Hudson Taylor, who was the missionary that many know to China. Uh, and Hudson Taylor went the route and he applied to all of the missionary agencies and this and that. Uh, and they, they basically all told him, no, you're not prepared enough, you're not educated enough, you're not this, you're not that, uh, and so on. And so what did Hudson Taylor do? 
He went on his own. He just went on his own and he basically started his own mission organization, the Hudson Taylor solo guy out there in the middle of China missionary organization. Uh, and he just went and he did the work because God was directing him and calling him. So he understood this idea of the immediacy of the call. So I just encourage you a question that I think is good for us to ask. What is keeping you from serving in the harvest field? What's keeping you back from going forward and doing that which God has called you to do? So these guys were told, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. I think another point, though, of that is this, that if we are reluctant to go forward because we're considering what our personal comforts will be or the absence of those personal comforts, will I have enough money? Will I be comfortable? Will I have the basics that I need? I need shoes, everybody needs sandals and things like that. So this consideration of personal comforts, that that has to be put aside and you just have to go and watch how God is going to provide and watch how God is going to protect. You know, I'm increasingly becoming aware of, I believe the Lord wants us to have that which we need, certainly, the Lord is my shepherd, we shall not want, and so on. But there's a lot of things we have here in our culture that we don't really need. You know, well, of course we need it because everybody's got a phone, so I gotta have a cell phone. You know, this sort of thing. Okay, um, everyone, you don't need a 50-inch TV. You know, you don't need to have that new sports car. You don't need to have the pool in the back and and all these things. So there's a lot of things that we have these comforts and these material things. And one of the things those material things can do to us is distract us from the work that God wants to do in and through us. And so we need to be careful with those things. And so. They, they just can't master us. That's the key. Now, he also says, greet no one on the road. And I think the point there being to not let anything hinder you from getting to the harvest field. So you have a job to get to the harvest field. Don't stop. Don't be distracted. Um, and all these things. Now, it, that's the context of it there. I think it's important to point out, though, many times in our lives that we're living, the interruptions of life along the pathway, they are definitely by God's design. That's the harvest field that he wants us to go to minister to. So you're at Walmart, and the lady, I saw this on Facebook, and actually it was one of those shows that they do, What Would You Do, I think is oh, what yeah. it's called. Yeah. 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 Kind of interesting. And so there's this lady at Walmart, and she is trying to like buy all these things, and then her like yeah. cash card doesn't have any money in it. And so she can't get these things, and she begins to cry. It's an actor, actress, yeah. and she begins to cry, and then the cameras are all there watching to see what would you do, the next guy in line. And some of the people in line are like, just looking at her and sorry. <laughs> and others are like, you know what, put it on my credit card or whatever and, and paying for her uh, and so on. Um, but there's an opportunity. So there you are, you were in Walmart, this lady is broken down, she's crying, and you now come alongside her and the Lord says, why don't you tell her this? Or why don't you pay for that? Or why don't you do this? And then you minister to that person. That was an interruption to, in life along the road that God wanted you to work and as the Lord directs and that's why we need to be in tune with where God is leading and directing because as the Lord directs if you say yes it's an opportunity for the Lord to work right yeah. alright let's go on to verse 5 it says whatever house you enter first say peace be to this house and if a son of peace is there your peace will rest upon him but if not it will return to you whatever house you enter 
So these guys, they're going forth, no uh, hotels and things like that. They're going to go into a community. They're going to begin to share. Someone's going to receive that message that they're saying and say, you know, why don't you come back to my home? Uh, we'll have a nice dinner and all that. And so he says, whatever house you enter, that's what the Lord has provided. So these guys now, they were going to go forth, no money bag, no sandals, uh, no knapsack, all that kind of stuff. And they were going to trust that God would provide and they were going to be thankful for what he provided. So they don't get to a house and say, oh, crap, I picked the wrong house. You know, I, I, we'll see you guys later. We're going to see if there's something better that is out there. If the place was receptive, then they were to accept it as if it had come from the Lord, because indeed it did come from the Lord. Now he also says, if not, if they don't accept you, you know, your message of peace to them, then the disciples weren't to let themselves be devastated. There are going to be people that receive, there are going to be people that reject. Don't freak out about it. Just move on to the next place. You know, Take your message of peace, put it back in your pocket, and go on to the next house. Uh, these guys were to be, as Paul uses in another place, ambassadors of Christ. And when ambassadors work for a particular country, they go forth as the representative of the president or the country or the prime minister that they're coming from. And so when they go and they say, hey, here's uh, what the United States wants to do, and the people don't respond very favorably to that, the ambassadors don't take it personally. They're not rejecting me. They're rejecting President Obama. They're rejecting the United States government. And so these guys were merely ambassadors of Christ, and any rejection was of Christ and not of them. We'll talk about that more as we keep moving on. Verse 7 says, Remaining, Remain in the same house. Eat, drink what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Don't go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Sometimes that's hard to do on the mission field because um, you don't know what's put before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Did you ever get the giblet? 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 In, uh, in Belize? Probably. The, the giblet or something like that? It's like this field rat oh. or whatever. I know. Don't worry. Does you eat it? You know, well... If they put it before you, according to this I'm passage, I'm just thinking about that. I'm just trip. teasing. Oh. <laughs> so, uh, the it or whatever this thing is called, you know, and then when you bite into it, you're like, you start pulling out buckshot, you know, because that's how they kill it. With, like, so, anyhow, you, don't worry about it. You'll be fine. Um, you didn't eat it, right? No. Jay never ate it. We, we ate it really twice, right? Well. Yeah, no, we just ate. We ate fantastic. Yeah. I only had that in this like authentic restaurant I went with Pastor Mark, so he'll be okay. Um, I'm praying about you in that trip. All right, so he says, remain in the same house. He he says, don't go from house to house. He says, eat what is before you. The point is this: receive God's provision without always looking for the the better thing that is out there. Be content with what the Lord gives you, provides for you. You know, and I, I, this kind of speaks to my heart. In, in this sense, um, from the perspective of like a quote-unquote minister or something, you know, in a lot of fellowships, there's sort of that always moving up the ladder, you know, so, okay, it's a church of 200, you know, and I worked there for two, three years, and now I'm going to go apply for a job of a church of a thousand, you know, and okay, and then I do that for a few, and now I'm going to look for this one, or whatever, and I just don't think that's the way the Lord would have it. You know, maybe that's how it works in the business world or something, and you sort of establish yourself. And, you know, certainly there are times, you know, there was recently a situation where 
you know, a pastor of a large church somewhat suddenly died, and so, you know, you don't just throw anybody in there, you know, so they brought in a person that had sort of done a mid-level church and they could handle that larger church, and so there's certainly a place for it. But as the minister with their eyes ahead on that next great thing, or any of us, you know, sometimes even when we're sharing with people, you know, and so we're talking with this guy, but man, that's a prime catch over there. I want to get over there if I can. And I just don't think that's what the Lord would have for us. So this idea of it's God's provision, not always looking for that next thing. Uh, he talks about the laborer deserves his wages. So it's not charity, as you would like give you know, someone on the side of a road or something. It's not charity to give to the salary of a minister. And it's not charity for the minister to receive it. Some ministers don't want to receive a salary because they feel like they're uh, taking a hand down all these things. But he says that the laborer deserves his wages. Goes on and says, heal the sick. Now, we know that the kingdom of God uh, was going to come forth with power. That's what the, the apostles and um, the first century Jews, they were expecting that. Now, they thought power was going to be overthrowing Rome. Um, but this instance here, it was going to come forth with a power, but it was also going to come forth with a mercy and with a kindness. So people are being healed. People are being provided for and fed, you know, and so on. And then it says, and then preach that the kingdom of God is, is uh, near. So the healing was not to stand alone. Because, you know, any all of those people that were healed, what happened to them? They all got sick again and died eventually, or hit by a bus or something in the first century. You know, so <laughs> this wasn't what it was about. It wasn't just about coming and healing, but it was about the preaching. That was sort of prepping and priming the heart. It was giving a confirmation to the message, this idea that the kingdom of God has come near. All right, verse 10. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. It seems kind of rude. Uh, we'll talk about it. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God is near. I tell you, it will be more bearable in the day for Sodom than for that town. So, when you go to a town and they don't receive you, some people will reject our ministry efforts. And so don't be surprised when that is. Don't be bothered by it. Don't be discouraged by it. It's not our responsibility to be successful in sharing in the message. It's our responsibility to be faithful. That's what God calls us to. So when people reject us, some may reject us. Some may reject us now and respond later to somebody else that comes along. And so I think it's important, how do you respond to the person that rejects you? Because remember, you're an ambassador, and you're going to be with this particular, think of it this way, I'm the ambassador for this president. Four years later, a new ambassador is coming in with a new president. And he's going to try to pick up where I left off, or she's going to try to pick up where I left off here. And so I don't want to burn bridges based on the response. So someone has rejected my message. If I you know, say all kind of things about them and do this to them, I could potentially burn bridges for the next ambassador that's going to come with share with them. But if I respond to them in a way that is kind, now they'll remember that. We talked about in Romans this idea of heaping burning coals upon a person's head. They'll remember that, and who knows, maybe later on they will be respond. They will respond, I should say. Now, I think it's also important that we talked about they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting Christ, and so on. Let's just make sure, though, that the reason why these people are rejecting what we're bringing has to do with that they're rejecting Jesus, 
and not our delivery, not our bad attitude, and all these sorts of things. So I just don't understand folks that line up and, you know, with signs or whatever, and God hates fags or something. I don't understand what you're trying to accomplish with that and how you think that's going to be effective. You know, you're just... And when people do reject that, the folks that you're talking to, as well as the people that see it on TV and watch it on the news and all that, and now that's their view of Christianity, they're not rejecting Jesus and they're not rejecting the message. They're rejecting you and what you have to share and the way you're sharing it. So let's just make sure that they're rejecting us for the right reasons. Right? Make sense? All right, now it says, and it shall be more bearable for Sodom. Now a little bit later it'll say, um, it'll talk about Tyre and Sidon as well. Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon were all cities that were notoriously known for their sin. You know, so you think about cities like, for instance, Las Vegas. As a matter of fact, I was thinking Las Vegas is called Sin City, isn't it? Am I correct? And so it's notoriously known, you know, for sin. Recently, my wife and I, we did that Groupon thing. You know, you can pay this much and get that much kind of thing. And we found uh, hotels, uh, of course, in the middle of the winter, uh, down in Atlantic City. And I could, I had never been to Atlantic City. I, can't, I kept thinking, like, do I really want people to know I'm going down to Atlantic City? You know, because they probably think I'm gambling or whatever. But anyway, there's lots to do down there, and it was a $50 room, and I was like, it's a good deal. Yeah, it was wonderful. Beautiful place, and nice room, and I got a meal out of it. It was fantastic. But Atlantic City, Las Vegas, you know, places like that, they're known, uh, notoriously known for sin. Well, that was what Sodom was known for. That's what Tyre and Sidon are known for. Most of you recognize that when you hear the word Sodom there. Uh, but notice Jesus says that it would be more bearable for Sodom than these towns that are rejecting the message of the kingdom of God going forth. And simply why? Because these guys have much more light than Tyre and Sidon and Sodom had ever had. They had much more opportunity. They could, they could literally walk down the street and see Jesus and chose not to, and they rejected it. And so they will be judged more harshly because of what they have rejected. He goes on in verse 13. Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Well, number of cities are named here, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. Those three cities are specifically pointed out for rejecting Jesus, despite the many opportunities and privileges they were given uh, by his presence and how much ministry that was done there. Um, you know, it's interesting. Israel is an archaeologically rich nation. You can pretty much go anywhere and find something. As a matter of fact, like it's standard to have on every single construction crew sort of an archaeologist. You know, can you imagine doing that here in the United States? Yeah, just you have an archaeologist on hand who's just basically waiting there because inevitably they're going to find something, and then everything has to stop, and he, and he or she has to go through the proper process of dealing with that construction project. I remember when we were in uh, Jerusalem the first time, uh, they were just doing like a road project right outside the. Uh, some, something with David, I forget exactly. 
um, but right by the Jaffa Gate. And, you know, they're there trying to dig up the road and put in a pipe or something, and everything had to stop. And everything was poured out because they had found something of Arkham. It, was, it didn't turn out to be huge, but it was something. But it's interesting. They have no idea where Carizan and Bethsaida are. They have a rough, so yeah, we think it's sort of up here, but they, they can't find it. They can find everything everywhere, but not these two. And so it's interesting that these two, woe to you, woe to you. As far as uh, Capernaum is concerned, a little bit later on, it says that you know you'll be exalted to heaven. It says in verse 15 there, uh, Capernaum became the home of Jesus. You know, everyone knows Nazareth and Bethlehem. Bethlehem was where he was born. Nazareth was where he was raised. But when Jesus went off onto the ministry and into the ministry, Capernaum became his home. And Capernaum, for the most part, rejected Jesus. Capernaum is interesting. You could go to Capernaum today, and it is literally a city of rocks. That's all that it is. Um, there is a weird-looking spaceship church <laughs> that sits over top, has a glass floor, and it sits over top of the rocks. And the rocks are sort of like, that looks like that was kind of a wall. Yeah, that was a house. Oh, okay. And that's Capernaum. And then there's a convent where a bunch of nuns and, and stuff live. That's it. And so, woe to you, Capernaum. Jesus chose to make you his home, and you rejected him. And now you're a city of rocks. Uh, is how you might look at it. So uh, those three that are there, verse 16, it continues. It says, the one who hears you hears me, the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Don't take it personally. If people don't take your message, don't take it personally. Make sure you're being faithful to the word of God, you're doing so in a respectful manner, and then let people respond how they're going to respond. They're ultimately responding to the Lord. Well, let's go on and look at these last couple of verses. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So first here is, they return with joy. There is a tremendous joy in serving the Lord. Is it tiring to serve the Lord? Sure. You know, are there things that are frustrating? Sure. But there's a tremendous joy in serving the Lord. And remember, these guys, they could have gone on the way, what are we going to eat? What are we going to wear? Where are we going to stay? What is this? What is that? You know, far better than all the worries about food and money and accommodations is the joy that comes with serving the Lord. Now, one of the things that's bringing great joy is that demons were subject to them. So here they come back, they tell the Lord the demons, and who's with the Lord now? The apostles, right? They're probably right behind them. They just came, you know, from uh, Caesarea Philippi. Do you remember what it said in chapter 9, verse 40? Remember they said that they, it said, and I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not, referring to the apostles. So I wonder how the apostles are feeling, let's just kind of try to get into their mind here, that these no-name disciples are coming back, and the demons are responding to them. Something to consider here. Another thing that is interesting, in Luke chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, the apostles, the twelve, it says, were given power and authority over all demons to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and, uh, and to heal. 
Well, these guys were sent out here in, in our passage here to proclaim the kingdom of God. It doesn't say anything about you know demons and, and all of that. And yet, even though they weren't commissioned in the same way, they were experiencing this power. And when we step out in obedience to do what Jesus would have us to do or tells us to do, then it's not uncommon that he's going to bless us far beyond what we even anticipated that he would bless us. And so that's what these guys are experiencing here. And they're delighted about it. And so they come back and they tell Jesus. And then Jesus, it seems, you know, like he's off and he's just like remembering this vision kind of thing he has. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Like, well, what's the context of that? Now, I guess I should read the whole thing. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And then he goes on and says, and I give you authority. Now, there's, there's possibly two reasons why Jesus is saying this at this particular time. One, they're talking about the fact that they have authority or had authority over these demons. And Jesus is confirming, simply, this could be one, that demons, or in this case Satan, has been defeated, that he will be defeated, and he's currently being defeated. And that's why they're having their success. So we know that Satan was defeated, correct? Ezekiel chapter 28. Mm -hmm. It talks about Satan being cast down. That could be what Jesus is looking to. Revelation chapter 12 talks about, there in the middle of the book of Revelation, almost the middle of the book of Revelation, that Satan will be cast out of heaven, no longer able to come and accuse the brethren, as he did in Job and other places, and so on. So maybe Jesus is looking forward to that particular thing. Maybe he's just simply confirming what they just said that Satan is being defeated here, and we, we see that because we have power over the demons. So that could be one. I think, though, and I tend to lean toward this, maybe it's both of them, I think Jesus is reminding the disciples to be on their guard against ministry pride. Somebody said this, that we are never in, in more, a more dangerous place than when we have just been used by God. You think, really, what? You were just used by God, you preached a great sermon, you are just used by God, you, you healed somebody, you delivered somebody, you, you served and, and everyone was blessed and lots of people came to the Lord. And then what happens? You start reading the press clippings. You start thinking really uh, good things about yourself and how wonderful you are and so on. And so maybe now Jesus is sort of speaking into their lives and saying, yeah, you guys came back and you did amazing things and great things, but don't forget Satan, Lucifer, remember the angel Lucifer, did great and amazing things. And he was lifted up in pride, ministry pride, and he was cast out of heaven. And so perhaps Jesus is raising it at this point to remind them to be humble. Either way, it's a good thing to remind ourselves of. Well, it goes on here and it says uh, that he has a, they had authority to tread on serpents, and then he says, and nothing shall hurt you. Now, some have used this verse, also the verse that is found in the book of Mark, chapter 16, verse 18, to advocate things like snake handling and drinking poison and all that. Um, I was reading that there are, and I'm sure there's more, but there are 168 churches in America that regularly the pastor will bring snakes and and these things, and they'll take that verse, particularly the one in Mark 16, 18, literally, about drinking poison and being bit by snakes, and it shall not harm you, and these things. 
many of you have probably heard that just recently in the news, there was a pastor from Kentucky, his name is Jamie Coots, uh, and he was bit by a snake of, of some sorts, and the venom of the snake uh, killed him. And his son went to the church service the next week. He took over as pastor and took the same exact snake, and I guess it's a matter of time for him as well. Uh, I don't believe that this promise here that Jesus is giving, it's not really here, but it's connected to the one that is found in Mark 16, 18, that the pro- and I'm not going to be holding any snakes, I can tell you that, um, either way. But I don't think the promise is to be understood in the context, I think it is to be understood in the context of the dangers of ministry. You remember Acts chapter 28? In Acts chapter 28, Paul, he gets stranded on this island here, and they're cold and they're wet, they've been shipwrecked, and so he goes, gathers up a bunch of sticks, throws the sticks in a fire, and the heat from the fire in the uh, sticks is a snake. Snake jumps out from the heat, grabs onto Paul, and bites Paul. And everyone's looking for Paul because he's going to die. When that type of snake bites people, they die. And Paul doesn't die. And now they think Paul's a god. But he's not a god, but God is protecting him through the normal or from the normal dangers inherent in ministry. God is preserving and protecting him. That's what I think Mark chapter 16, verse 18 is referring to. Not that we should sort of test or I'll show you how much faith I have and I'm going to do this and that. I don't think that's what Jesus meant at all. Anyway, he goes on and says, and hopefully none of you do. He goes on and says, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So the idea is this. Don't rejoice that you have authority over demons. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So we need to take care that quote-unquote ministry pride doesn't overtake us. And the best way to do that is by reminding ourselves daily that we are people that have been redeemed by grace. And the realization that as a sinner that is saved by grace, that guards us against pride because we realize there's nothing in us to be proud of. What the Lord has done for us will always be greater than anything that we could do for Him. And so I think Jesus here is reminding these guys, good, valuable lesson. I think all of these are good, valuable lessons for us. He's going to send us forth. We're going to have a ministry to go and do. It's good to do that with a partner. It's good to do that without keeping in mind, well, what are my creature comforts? uh, And will those particular comforts be met? It's good to just kind of lay it out there. And if people reject it, they reject it. And you just walk away and you're like, that's fine. And we don't burn bridges. You have all these examples Uh, that are given to us. I think they're valuable for us as we're seeking to walk with the Lord and follow the Lord. And then ultimately, we walk in humility. And whatever God accomplishes through us, it's all grace anyway, what God is doing. And so we give the glory back to Him and we rejoice in the fact that our names are written in heaven. Right? Greatest thing that God could ever do.